This is Justin Meissen. I'm the Research and Restoration Program Manager at the Tallgrass Prairie Center, and this is the Prairie Farm Podcast. I'm Doug Duran, a landowner trying to be a conservationist. I'm Tabitha Panis, president of the Iowa Prairie Network. I'm Ryan Callahan, director of conservation at Meat Eater. Angela from Axe and Root Homestead. Chris Helzer, the Nebraska director of science for the Nature Conservancy. Judd McCollum from Working Class Bowhunter. Taylor Keene, founder of Sacred Seed. I'm Ryan Bryson of Bryson Wildlife. This is Luke Fritch. This is James Holtz. Joy Van Weingarten. Sam Sobel. Phil Ebert. Julie Meachin. And you are listening to the Prairie Farm. The Prairie Farm. Prairie Farm. Prairie Farm. Prairie Farm Podcast. Prairie Farm Podcast. Welcome to the Prairie Farm Podcast. Justin, where the heck are my 35 other seeds per square foot? Where are they going, man? That is a really good question. And to be quite honest, you know, we don't really have that great of an idea. Um, We're still figuring that out. That is part of what I'm trying to do with my research program. Yeah. Um, I would say that is probably, you know, the, the, the big question that, um, as one of the things I remember in my interview process, you know, I, I had to kind of develop a research program, you know, kind of a prospectus and, uh, and that was the, one of the things I put on there in 2016 and here we are in 2023 and that's still very top of mind. So wow. I can tell you that, you know, we've, as restoration ecologists, we've been working on this for a long time. And uh, we've made a lot of progress, certainly. Um, and I can, we can talk about those uh, avenues that uh, we have made some good progress. But there's still some some gaps in our knowledge for sure. And, you know, if you think about it, it's a, such a complex question yeah right? and for anyone who doesn't know standard planting practice for prairie restoration is 40 seeds per square foot we do all the math so when a farmer comes and says hey i want a 50 acre bag or a 50 pound bag that doesn't mean anything to me because every seed weighs differently so depending on your mix you're gonna have a different weight per acre so yeah i can give you a 50 pound bag of rattlesnake that's very different than a 50 pound bag of common mountain mint uh but when we plant, we plant 40 seeds a square foot. But then when you go back into the prairies, there's like four plants in that square foot. But if you only plant four seeds a square foot, you ain't going to get nothing. So I just don't understand where it goes. Do you guys have any leads as to what you're thinking? So, yeah. So, uh, Laura, uh, Jackson, a professor here at the Tallgrass Prairie Center has, has also looked at this question. I also asked, been asking this question and, and some of the interesting things that she's found when she's looked at it is one of the big places those seeds are going is in the stomachs of seed predators, right? Really? So, so we're talking, you know, small mammals, uh, insects, things like that. Um, and, and do birds come and get them at all? I, you know, I have, I don't know that we have data on that, but I definitely see them. You know, yeah. after after we do a planting, the uh, the uh, the birds come for sure and start yeah. picking out stuff. Now, whether they're eating the cover crop or our prairie seeds, I don't know. But hmm. that is fascinating. That's a, I mean, not totally a bummer, you know, because we're like helping sustain a species, except many species. But uh, it is a little bit of a bummer. It is a little bit of a bummer. But um, you know, if you think about the 
remnants that we have. And, you know, I, I don't, I don't have numbers prepared for you, but, you know, when we think about what the natural process was of, you know, something, you know, plant coming up from a seed, um, you know, we have in a remnant prey, what we call seed rain, which is basically all of those, uh, and Nick, you'd probably know, you know, seed rain is basically your, your harvest, your yield, mm-hmm. right? And so in, in a natural tall grass prairie, a tremendous amount of seed is produced and shed all over that, you know, tall grass prairie. So, yeah. so, you know, from a population standpoint, that's not a big deal when you have 99% um, seedling uh, predation. It's, that's not that high, but you have 99% um, seedling death of some kind. But when you have millions and millions of seeds every year being added, yeah, that's really not a big deal in the grand scheme of things. So if you think about what we're doing, when we're doing a, a restoration project. It's compared to what nature can do. Yeah. It's a very, it's a pale, a pale comparison, right? 40 seeds per square foot versus, you know, hundreds to thousands. Yeah. And so we ask ourselves, where do those seeds go and get rightfully frustrated that things don't necessarily turn out the way we expect. But, but I think, you know, it always is worth putting things back into perspective about, you know, what we're trying to do is really hard. (laughs) Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, we're trying to mimic thousands of years of tuned in, um, species. Uh, and by thousands of years, I mean, just since the last ice age, you know, tuning itself in and we're like, give it a couple of years, you know, we'll, we'll have it or people or even, People will plant stuff in May, and we have instructions when we send uh, when we send out prairie, and they'll call me in June saying, "Hey, nothing's up; it's all weeds." I'm like, "Yeah, we'll be till next June as well." <laughs> you know, you're not going to see anything, but uh, that's fascinating. How, do you ever go out there and you're you're just screaming like, "Where are all the seeds?" Oh, like looking on the yeah. ground. I mean, <laughs> absolutely. I I am also guilty of going out. You know, we do dormant plantings. I go out in May and I, you know, I get all anxious. I'm not seeing what I need to see. (laughs) And I'm like, where is, you know, what, you know, am I going to, should I reseed already? And then I have to, you know, to bring myself down and say, no, it's not time to start making decisions. But, um, I have to wait at least until September to start worrying. So, um, especially in a year like this year, you know, with, with the drought, um, oh yeah, those, those seedlings they're quite resilient um, mm. throughout this year, especially when they were uh, dormant seeded. So, so I you know I came out there in September, did some actual sampling, and uh, got my answer, which is you know I was able to sleep at night. So. Nice, yeah, you, <laughs> you had something showing up. Yes, that's pretty cool. Yeah, yes. we had we planted big bluestem last fall. We planted a new field and. Uh, so this year was all seedlings, so we had to keep it mowed, but I'm looking, I'm like, I don't see, I don't see nothing. And dad's like, no, it's out there. You know, got to believe it. You know, trust you, you never, I've never, you don't plant big blue stem and nothing shows up. Right. But, uh, um, it is interesting what shows up for weeds in certain fields, right? Cause sometimes it's just straight button weed. Um, and other times it's like the panicum grass and you're like, what is going on here? Um, but, uh, what's really interesting is when something like clover comes up and and something that's not native hasn't it definitely hasn't blown on you know so and no bison's been bringing it in their fur so you think like 
oh, that clover's been there for like 40 years, you know, those seeds. And I imagine they vary. I imagine like legumes would hang out longer than um, some of the other seeds. But uh, do you have any indication of how long seeds hang out in the ground? They can, yeah, you're, you're definitely right that it's a really variable. Um, and some of them, you know, again, I don't have numbers off the top of my head, but there's a a cool study that, um, some people have been doing in Minnesota looking at, so basically what they did was they, you know, they put a bunch of seeds in a tube with, um, I think mesh of some kinds, basically expose them to regular conditions in the soil. They did that, I want to say 30 years ago, sometime in the 90s, I believe. And then every 10 years, certain, every certain, um, you know, um, sequence of timing, they would take it out and then put some of, some of that soil back on a germ tray and see what came up. So they're actually looking at different kinds of seeds. Wow. Mostly wetland stuff. Um, and I think there's at least 30 years in, and can you guess which seeds might still be germinating really well in a wetland context 30 years in? No, I mean like a prairie wetland? Yeah. Like, uh, Lobelia cardinalis or? Reed canary grass. Oh. (laughs) Oh man, dude. I've, that's crazy. I was actually just talking to Andy about this because like, is Reed's canary grass like? useful in its original habitat what what are they oh my gosh uh what a complex question so reconary grass is the most um confusing story uh we don't we don't even know really the story of where it came from why it's invasive really on paper i thought it was just from eurasia and we knew that it's it's not so it, it is native in europe okay but it's also native to North America. Oh. And the prevailing wisdom is that our invasive form is a sort of a um, a bread, uh, kind of a cultivar-esque type of uh, mm. escape from um, some places in uh, Minnesota. And, uh, but again... There's a lot of uh, like from Native Americans a long time ago, or from like oh, farmers no. in the 1950s? This was, I believe, in the 30s. Oh wow! Yeah. So, what were they using it for? Forage, you know. Okay. It was uh, it was planted a lot more often back in the day, okay. and certainly more farther north. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it's um, still you know there's a lot of unknowns. You know, all of those kind of questions have to be asked through genetics because you can't, you know, nobody's keeping good records yeah. back, back that far. Yeah. So, so it's, um, so the questions are hard and, um, there's, um, there's another, there's a guy at, uh, University of Minnesota that, um, Neil Anderson, who's, uh, done all that work. So it's kind of devoted his most Man. of his career to that question. That's crazy. Yeah. And the good news is we learned with the reeds canary grass. So we went and took something else like brome and planted it everywhere instead. And <laughs> now we got that all over. The- well, they were, you know, I would say they're probably in the same era of sort of, um, ah. conservation being a, um, a way to quote unquote improve things. Right. Yeah. So, um, yeah, the, the 30s through 
the seventies or so. And depending on where you're at up until 2023, depending on who you're talking to, but, uh, that's crazy. That is so crazy. So I, uh, you had talked to my previous colleague, Peyton, um, RIP Peyton. We miss you. He's not dead. He's just moved on. (laughs) Uh, um, you were looking into like how many seeds per square foot a species needs before it's even worth mentioning in a mix, like 0.01 seeds a square foot, I guess like wasn't worth putting in a mix. You might as well just add that to a different species you were putting in there. Um, which, which I like, I like the study. It's a little bit of a bummer because some things we can't afford to put, you know, I really want world milkweed to be out there. I could sell it wholesale to someone, you know, and they'd take it all, but I really want it in the mixes and the farms around us. Um, but it's a thousand dollars a pound. And so unless you want to pay an extra hundred dollars, I can't do, I can't even do 0.1 seeds a square foot. I've got to do way Mm -hmm. less than that. Mm -hmm. So why, why, like what were your findings with that? Um, let's see. I'm trying to think of the, uh, specific study i mean and you know generally i i wouldn't say that we i i, I never want to um uh, discourage anyone from having a really diverse mix so mm-hmm. I, you know on on average i think it is a good thing to include a lot more species at lower rates than if you were to just try to you know really nail it with a couple of species right yeah. so so you know, with the with world milkweed, um, you, you know, it it actually does establish pretty well for um, for for what it is. Um, but I think the so you know, going back to that initial question of why why are things not coming up, or you know, where did my thirty five seeds go? So mm-hmm. you know, when we talked about that, you know, the idea that in in nature we have sort of these. Um, situations where so many seeds are going on the ground. So we have different strategies, different plants are using different strategies here, right? So, and and one thing that is pretty predictive of that is seed size. Mm. So when we huh. talk about 0.01 seeds per square foot, you know very well that that means something very different for Culver's root compared to white wild indigo, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 0.01 seeds per square foot for white wild indigo. It's actually pretty good. It's not a bad rate. You know, you're yeah. going to definitely get it out there. 0.01 for Culver's root, probably not, right? Because mm. the tiny seeds simply don't have enough juice to germinate and survive um, in a restoration context. So the strategy for um, something like Culver's root would be to just kind of litter the area around it with millions of seeds over yeah. time. And so that's how they evolve, which makes sense. Cause white wild indigo produces way less seeds per, you know, pod or stem or whatever you, you want to look at than Culver's root. So Culver's root basically evolved and said, we're going to do quantity. And yes. white wild indigo said, I'm going to put everything I got and do a few seeds, uh, more of a Culver's root man myself, but <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a classic ecological trade off. Right. And so, and that shows up, um, you know, I haven't 
published anything yet, but, um, you know, one of the, when you do look at that, when you do look at the establishment rates across species, um, there's a pretty good relationship between, you know, the seeding rate and, uh, sorry, the establishment rate and the, um, size of the seed. So, so we can actually predict That's in some way, you know, pretty, not exactly good, but it is a general sense of how well a seed mix will establish based on, you know, seed size. So crazy. Yeah. Well, it's also, yeah, smaller seeds tend to be cheaper. Um, man, maybe that would be nice. It like round headed bush clover. So expensive to put out there, but I love it. I love the species out there and it's a great legume and, um, and, uh, oh, what is that? Lespedeza capitita. Did mm-hmm. I get that right? Yeah. Ha! Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We're working on them. Uh, and, uh, but it's a bigger seed size. So I don't know. I think it'd be cool if we could bring down seed requirements, maybe from, uh, depending on their size. So like, let's say you actually need 60 seeds per square foot, but round headed bush clover counts three or white wild indigo counts as, as a, a you know, one or something like that instead of, uh, um, you know, just, just because then for without racking up the price totally for the farmers on the other side. And if we're still getting a similar product, like I don't need to dump as many seeds around head of bush clover for the same success rate. I think that'd be good. I think I'm getting too far into the the numbers and I'm not good enough at explaining them to be this far into it. I know exactly what you're talking about. And so, um, so let me put it to you this way. So maybe, you know, I I definitely see where you're going with this. Um, so think about it, like, what are we trying to achieve with the seed mix? Right. We're not, we don't really care that it's a bag of seeds, right? Mm -hmm. We care that this bag of seeds equals some plant community. Yeah. 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 So, what if we just designed the plant community that we wanted and then worked backward from there? Hmm. So that's where this idea of, um, you know, seed size can help us. So basically if we can predict the, um, the number of plants from the number of seeds then we can create, or we can design a, a plant community based on the number of plants we want hmm. and then work backward from there. It's interesting. And, and so that's what I've started to do with my own seed mixes. I've just kind of started with this, but you know, instead of 40 seeds per square foot, thinking about it in terms of like 20 plants per square meter or mm. two, two plants per square foot. Yeah. Because we know in general, we, even, even the best of the best, even Rebecca heard a 20, mm-hmm. 20% establishment that best. Right. Yeah. So, so it's, you know, that's, int- I was just thinking about black eyed Susan cause we put it in heavy in the mix, not cause we're trying to have a cheaper mix that that doesn't bother us. You know, we want farmers to have something show up the first year and then they get excited about it. They show people, they, they care. They're a little more invested. They're like, wow, that really worked. You know? So that's why we put black eyed Susan, but you're saying that. And and the reason we put black eyed Susan is cause it shows up, you know, yeah. it, mm-hmm. you can always get it to show up, but that's still, you're talking 20%, um, uh, germination. That's crazy. Yeah, it's um, and that's that's in a good situation, but wow, it, it, because it go, so it's interesting because it's one of those things that because it comes up and establishes or it grows so fast, 
it makes itself known <laughs> very yeah. quickly. Um, you know, all of this work, you know, you know, I talk about all this, um, you know, uh, all these relationships between seed size and plant plants and, and things like that. And it's based on seedling year one seedling, uh, ID stuff. So, so this is a tough thing to do. Yeah. Right? So, yeah. so we, you know, when we think of, if we just are out there kind of just eyeballing things, you really miss what's going on from a population standpoint, which is almost, you know, all those plants for the most part are there. They're just very, very small. <laughs> yeah. And it takes five years for some of those to compass plant, for example. Yeah. To, to, to actually flower and, and, you know, you know, to see it yeah. out there. Same well, with, same with, uh, the indigos, wild indigo. Oh yeah. Or, um, what blazing stars, several of the blazing stars you won't even see until you get five years in and then have a burn. And then all of a sudden you're like, Whoa, look at all that purple, you know? And, um, it isn't, it's a patient game, but you know, still five years compared to 10,000 years. It's hardly anything for the, how the prairies developed, but did, uh, so when you're studying that, how the heck do you even do that? You literally get on your hands and knees and like measure out a square foot Yes. yes. Wow. So what we do, so we do this at uh, Irvin Prairie. I don't know if your listenership has heard of Irvin Prairie, but I, we just talked about it in Andes. Okay. With Andes. Very good. So, so there's this, you know, really awesome project that we're working on in Bend County, um, where we do have the um, the plans to do a tremendous amount of monitoring, kind of just figure out what exactly is going on out there. So. We do go out there. We have a systematic kind of grid set up that we will go out and put down a. Um, it's we use a uh, series of quadrats that are about an eighth of a square meter, which is about a square uh, one square foot. So we count every native plant that's coming up in the first year in that square foot, and we wow. do that over the, the whole site. And then you can come up with some estimates about what are the establishment rates of these different species. And because we've tracked our seed mix very closely, mm-hmm. we do we know exactly how many seeds that we've we put in there. And, uh, and this only works with commercial seed, though, too, right? Which mm-hmm. is a, you know a great tie-in to, to what you guys are doing. And um, because we have seed tests, because those are required, we we know how many living seeds we have too, mm. right? Because if you think about what a lot of folks do when they're doing restoration, they're using bulk harvested seeds, which is great. I love it. That's the best way to do it is to go into a remnant, harvest seeds right off the remnant, clean them up a little bit enough that you can get them going through your broadcaster and then put them out on a restoration. Mm. That's the the best way to do it, but it's not the best way to study it, right? Because we know that, when you harvest, you know, five pounds of seed, it's not five pounds of living seed, right? Yeah. And especially in a year like this or, you know, where you might have really low, you know, survival rates of, yeah. of seeds. So so having all that stuff kind of taken care of through your seed tests, we can have very, very precise understanding of the the, the number of living seeds that are being sown out there. Man. That's crazy. So you're on your hands and knees. You're looking at a square foot area. Um, 
but you're still only seeing like five little tiny plants in that area or is it like 20 of them start up and then they get choked out by four of them that establish better that that kind of thing is another long-term kind of question we have um whether and that's a seed mix design question in terms of you know how you were basically big how much big blue stem you put in the seed mix yeah um so that's um we're talking about ceilings that get crowded out over time. It tends to be a, a um, function of that, or you have a, you've, you know, you have a site prep issue where yeah. you've not completely eliminated a perennial grass usually that mm. is the problem. So, um, but yeah, no, going back to, you know, year one, hands and knees, square foot, um, you know, typically we consider if you have one plant per square foot, um, that's kind of your cutoff for success. And it seems really low, but that's tends to be what that's crazy. Once you start, once you start seeing a lot of, once you're measuring a lot of, um, areas, at least in the first year, that's, that's low. I would, I would like to see like two to three. Wow. But, um, I don't think I've ever, I have I have one that has uh, been like fifteen, and that was a situation where it like was one field or one square foot, one square foot, fifteen. <laughs> well, no, 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 <laughs> fifteen plants per square foot. Oh, in the whole field, uh, like yeah, overall, yeah, 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 was, yeah. yeah. And um, that was a interesting little experiment where we, you know, we're looking at this seed size question and we planted a ton of uh rough drop seed and it was mm. a really good year for rough drop seed <laughs> and so so we had this really dense um situation that i've never been able to replicate i don't know if i necessarily want to i think mm-hmm. three three is pretty good assuming it's real long-lived perennial species so so we had a couple fields we planted fairly late in 2021 as in like June 20th. Um, was it 2021? No, 2022, 2022. Uh, and it was really dry that year. And in these areas, it was really dry this year. Uh, this year we actually got a lot of rain, but North and South of us didn't. Um, and basically nothing came up. All the other fields we planted that year came up, but then these couple didn't do those need to be replanted or since there's a seed bank there, do you think something would could plan to come up or maybe the seedlings did come up and they got fried, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're thinking that the, uh, seedlings or I mean the, the seed that you planted is acting as your seed bank or yes. Yeah. Okay. That, that, that is what I was talking about. I, th- I think that is a, it's generally pretty optimistic to okay. think about that because, um, once those seeds are in the soil, they're really getting hammered from all sides. Yeah. You know, um, if it's not, uh, you know, you, one of the things that helps is to think about how 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 many ways can a seed die when it's in the soil, right? <laughs> so you know, we we talked about the um, seed predators, insects, birds, uh, small mammals, but also probably the biggest one is fung fungi other soil microbes mm. yeah. are attacking it. 
um, and uh, and eating it. Um, otherwise, especially for really small seeds, doesn't take much to bury it too deep for mm. it to, um, you know, kind of get kicked out of commission. Um, and then once it's deeper, it's got more chance for fungal fungal attack too. So, so it is a very hostile environment yeah. when we plant seeds, right? And so um, when we're only talking about 40 seeds per square foot that we've planted, you know, that that uh, seed bank diminishes really quickly. Yeah. And so um, if you're doing it uh, in a established prairie where you have basically the equivalent of adding hundreds to thousands of seeds per square foot every year, Perhaps you might have a more, more longer lived seed bank. But the interesting thing about that is that it's a species by species thing, right? So, you know, if you look at the studies that have looked at seed banks and prairies, um, it looks, the seed bank looks nothing like the, the, uh, the, the vegetation growing above it. Mm. So, you, you know, you'd expect that the seed bank would be full of big blue stem and Indian grass and like, um, you know, like a four like uh, asters and stuff like that. Yeah. Absolutely not. <laughs> really? It's basically only uh, things like um, verbena and um, black-eyed Susan that are, you know, it's just very disturbance tolerant. I mean, they're adapted to disturbance type species. Hmm. And so for being a, like Hori Vervain, blue Vervain, Hori Vervain. Yeah. 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 Okay. Hori Vervain. Yeah. Um, man. So, so, you know, so you, we're really working a, a, against a lot of things and I think we got to pat ourselves on the back where we're at right now, Yeah. but we can actually accomplish given all of this stuff arrayed yeah. against us. We can restore prairie. Yeah. Pretty pretty good i mean not nearly to the extent that um you know a remnant compared to a remnant but the fact that we can buy you know for river prairie the fact that i can purchase 120 species a year and have you know we've found over 85 of those species out there and this is only mm. the fifth year that we've worked been working out there so wow so you know it's there's a lot of challenges obviously but um, I never want to make it seem like we can't overcome those. Yeah. What's the, because you guys go and find remnant prairie and cultivate Laura Walter then cultivates it and then you sell it to us and then we sell it back to you guys or sell it to other people. What's been the hardest thing you've tried to find and maybe couldn't found, find or found, but it took you forever. Oh, that's a good question for Laura. Um, I haven't been involved in the uh, remnant hunting too much but certainly i can <laughs> i don't know if you're going to talk to laura later today but um um you know she's she's always talking about her uh her, her travels and her um investigations yeah. trying to find things so like for example she's been on the hunt for kelms brome um this year hmm. and that's an interesting one with a kind of a weird range that um tends to be most easily found in the northeast part of the state in Iowa, but it gets down into parts of the eastern parts. And then if you look at the historical records, it should be somewhere in the north, you know, throughout the north half in, in places. And hmm. she um, she had a hard time finding 
And it's a, it's a, it's a really small little grass, right? So it's not easy to find. And I imagine people looking at it probably have no idea. So now you're, there's very few people that could look at it and know what they're looking for. Exactly. And, and Calm's room is actually a, a different, it's a, from, from that standpoint, you know, Laura's also working on something like uh, Dudley's rush, which when you get into rushes and sedges, which we, you yeah. know, we've been able to produce a lot of those sedges, you know, that, that requires a lot of, um, you know, study <laughs> to be oh, able yeah. to differentiate that stuff in the field. Oh, I have no idea. I mean, sedges are like, feel like they're new to scientists. They, they, uh, I was at the North American Prairie Conference, and they were like, yeah, we basically like don't know that much about them compared to what we know about the tall grass prairies and, and the major um, grasses that hang out in the, the prairies. But, yeah, sedges are just their own weird thing. Yeah, and we've um, we've definitely pushed putting those into seed mixes. They do come up, especially if you use kind of the generalist sedges like Bebei. Bebei likes its feet wet a little more. I'm talking mostly about um, stuff like yellow fruit sedge, which is Carexinectes. Bicknellii? Yeah. Um, we put that in the mix. I've had a hard time getting it to come okay. up, but it does theory on paper it's it is the prairie sedge that's the weird thing right? huh. <laughs> like on paper yeah. it should be the, the best one in the prairies but that's the other one uh, fox sedge vulpin yeah fox sedge that's another kind of feet wet kind of a plant that What's, does good. there's another dry one so the dry ones that uh, do really well are um Kirk's brevior which is the I guess you just <laughs> thing about the sedges is they're not really a common name <laughs> yeah yeah I guess you call them short beak sedge yeah there's another do people call it what's oval sedge that is a whole kind of group of sedges so (laughs) because i i see that and i mean i we even had a conversation because you were looking for broom sedge ah yes and i and i said we had it but we had blunt broom sedge and yeah it it, it's tough i have learned with uh sedges i always include the if you want me to rant, you can. I will rant about the importance of using scientific names. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, good luck, good luck convincing my dad. He knows the scientific name of one plant, Lespedeza capitata, capitata, uh, because we sell it to a company that only refers to it, at, and we sell all of it every year to one company that refers to it only by its scientific name. Uh-huh. And so that that's why he knows everything else. He is common name. And, uh, man, I'm, I'm about to put him on the spot here. Uh, really good at farming. Not great with words, dad, not, <laughs> not his like skill set. Um, and sometimes he gets really excited about things. So he starts talking quickly and he'll basically like skip over or mumble words together and we had this kid that I know that was working for us, incredible worker. His name's Ezra. Uh, and dad was on some tirade about something. He was excited about something he was ready to share with us. And uh, in the middle of a sentence called Ezra Isabel, <laughs> which is his granddaughter's name. <laughs> and so now we roast Ezra for that. But uh, uh, I'm thinking of all the farmers similar to him. And uh, our poor brains, <laughs> but yeah. So did you like in college? They just uh, were like, "No, you're going to use scientific names for everything." 
when did I start doing scientific names? So my, you know, my journey through restoration ecology, um, yeah, it started in, uh, college and, um, I don't think I knew scientific names until I graduated because that's when I started having to, it's when I got a position at the nature conservancy in Minnesota doing, um, field, uh, ecology. So actually, you know, writing down (laughs) scientific names on a piece of paper day in and day out. And so, um, and, and you know, it, it never, so it's, it's really not a big deal until you want to talk to somebody about it. That's mm-hmm. when this all kind of makes its, rears its ugly head is yeah. just like we were just talking about, I don't know what blunt broom sedge is. Yep. And if you look at it, if you look it up, you'll probably find multiple different sources calling different plants blunt broom sedge or broom sedge in general, mm-hmm. right? And so until we can get a standardized common name, which is a big lift, yeah, uh, like the bird people do, yeah, that would be, that would be amazing. Um, but until that day, like the bird people do love it. (laughs) Yeah. They have, I think they have standard common names, which is amazing to me. Yeah. Um, but until that day we're, we have to, we have to know what's, when we're talking about a plant, what we're actually talking about you know, person to person so that, yeah. you know, there's no loss of communication. Hmm. And so, so that, yeah, it's, it's tough. I, I, I feel for you, but feel for everybody. Yeah. <laughs> um, my, uh, my little sisters have a really rigorous education and the two older ones are in high school. And I don't know, I think they transitioned to Spanish um, but in like eighth and ninth grade, they could conversationally speak Latin and, uh, and they, we would like say scientific names and they could give, uh, uh, for a lot of the words they could give like a root, what it meant. And which makes sense, you know, when you look at roots of why they're named certain things, it'll be like, uh, like hairy leaf, you know, for something. And you're like, oh yeah, it does kind of have a hairy leaf. And, uh, but all right, look, I can only talk about. Latin names for so long, <laughs> but I do have a question. I saw something on the field trip the other day that was really interesting out just out here in your production fields. You have strips of, I don't think it was different planting methods. I think it was different percentage for to grass ratios. Walk me through that. Cause that's fascinating. Yeah. So that is a, um, an experiment that we have looking at. So that, that's a fun study because it looks at kind of a lot of the decisions that a farmer has to make, you know, in the planting process. So deciding what kind of a seed mix to plant, or if you step up, step back even farther, what kind of a, a CRP program you want to enroll in. Yeah. Um, because we have kind of with these seed mixes that we looked at um, different kinds of basically grassy mixes, balanced mixes and Forby mixes. So, um, I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but yeah, so we, yeah, so we looked at these, uh, a variety of, um, uh, management practices or decisions that farmers can, um, you know, often have to make. So when do you plant? Do you plant in the dormant season? Do you plant in the spring? Do you mow 
do you mow uh, not at all or do you mow kind of throughout the whole growing season? Yeah. And then what do you plant, right? So do you plant a grassy mix? Do you plant a balanced mix? That's So we're talking about three to one for grass to forbs, one to one, just the balanced mix, one uh, this is all seed density and then a four B mix, which is a basically a pollinator mix or mm-hmm. a one to three. So, so how do you know, how does all that stuff interact and how can you, how can farmers make better you know decisions? How can they succeed more likely? Uh, how can they be more likely to succeed by choosing certain you know combinations of um, choices? And what we found is that, um, you know, the, the grassy mixes are grassy, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and they do well. And basically, uh, in most circumstances, as far as cover goes, um, but they don't do very well with respect to the amount of wildflowers that are able to produce flowers. So, yeah, so you kind of have this trade-off where you know you invest in grasses and you get cover. Yeah. Um, whereas, man, there's the silliest mixes going on right now. So there's, they split it where they're doing these like safe habitat program. Oh How, you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> yeah. Where they have like, so half of your land is supposed to go into like a short grass blend. And usually those are pretty good. They're like 50, 50 forb and grass, but it's all short grass, which I don't mind at all. Um, but then they want a tall grass. And so I was like, well, I'm going to make this a really nice like tall grass species. I had like 10 grasses. Obviously it had to be heavy Indian grass, big blue stem and switchgrass, which I'm already kind of like, ah, and I went really heavy on the Indian because big blue stem will just trample everything if you're not careful. So you can't put 10 seeds a square foot of big blue stem. It'll just be big blue stem. So, uh, and I'm not going to digress. I'm going for it. <laughs> uh, so I made the, and, and I had like 30 Forbes in there and I was like, well, at the very least, some of these are going to stand strong and it's going to be good. And I really tried to press for 2020 if I could on, and then all the, all the, um, office NRCS office managers were like, no, that that's not going to work. This is the mix you're going to want. And it was like just big blue stem, Indian grass, switchgrass and two Forbes. And I even said like, well, can I add extra Forbes? You know? So no, we just want two. I'm like, what, what is the point of this stupid mix? You know? And, uh, uh, yeah, I just felt so silly about it. I was like, if, and if the fields are touching, I mean, 10 years that forget about your short mix. You ain't getting no short mix. Anyway, I'm upset about them. Yeah, that's not good. No, <laughs> no. Um, yeah, yeah. So that that's, you bring up a good point about one of the interesting things that's come out of the scientific literature. And obviously I've, I think we've both seen it with our eyes, you know, we've mm-hmm. experienced it. But when you think about the grass, you know, the big grasses, big blue stem is, your culprit in when we talk about you know grasses be something being too grassy it's almost always big blue stem Mm -hmm. and so if there's anything you can do to prevent overabundance of grass it's limit big blue stem and then put the rest in there i will say with switchgrass that seems to be a weird situation going on i think the cultivars might persist longer but um at least in our experience, we've seen switchgrass establish really well up front, and then over time it kind of fades away. If we're using the Iowa Eco type stuff, hmm. um, it kind of becomes more, uh, equalizes to its natural abundance in prairies, which is not that much. Yeah. Um, really? That's fact. I didn't realize. I, that's I kind just, of. 
Talk about speculating. I'm yeah. Speculating. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Nice. Well, because Canlo switchgrass, which we grow, and that's a cultivar, very tall cultivar, is like fizzled out. You know, our, our field, we have to put, replant a field every five years. It's like a forb on how it does that. It, And what's really weird is every time it'll fizzle out in the middle of the field and the edges will look great. You walk 10 feet in there and yeah. it's like uh-huh. big blue stem. It's like a mix of stuff. It's a pretty cool looking field actually when you get in there because you're that's like locked. You're, you got prairies <laughs> holes you can see, so you can't see anything else around. And you could just, and you've got some little blue stem, big blue stem, Indian grass, Cytotogramma in there. And, uh, you know, and always some common milkweed somehow making it in there. And so you're like, wow, this is like a prairie. This is like a tall grass prairie. But our, uh, our Iowa ecotype field is really strong. It stays really strong. It's actually the reason Kent can't be here today is because of the weather coming up. Um, we got to get that harvest in. Uh, but uh, I would not have guessed that the switchgrass fizzled out so so much i mean they're li- it's then why do they limit it they limit how much you can put in the fields well i think it's because of how good it does for the first five to ten years okay um because it definitely if you if you went out to a five-year-old prairie planting um and you planted a lot of switchgrass you'd see a lot of switchgrass okay that and makes it, sense yeah so it's um and it, yeah i think um, and I, that's what I want my switchgrass to do from Iowa ecotype standpoint is for it to act like an Iowa ecotype. And so, um, you know, it, it, I, I think it does great for, it acts like I want it to act, you know, in our, in our prairies. So, um, but I don't know if it's a, uh, it's a good question of what's going on there. Hmm. Is there a, um, so big blue stem, but that that's the ultimate increaser. Is there anything else that pushes out like big blue stem does if you're not careful? Uh f- at least from the scientific literature, no, big blue stem is kind of its own thing. And cuz we joke, we say it's the apex prairie and it was controlled basically solely by buffalo and fire or bison and fire. But do you, do you have any idea what it was controlled by if it wasn't those things? I don't know. I mean, I think obviously climate is a is a situation that's um you know, we've had a big change in our climate in the past 50 years from the original prairies which were a lot mm. tended to, you know, in, at least in the last part of the prairie's life cycle or you know, before they all plowed up. Yeah. Um, you know, I think it was cooler and drier, which would uh favor something more along the lines of like your cool season grasses like uh porcupine grass and uh, liberg's panic grass and yeah. things like that so june grass things like that so um so i think there's just a combination of stuff that once you kind of let it go it tends to want to move towards a warmer wetter uh climate that big blue stem likes and mm. um and also obviously there's no more disturbances that um, you heard it here first folks if you don't do something about climate change big blue stem is going to take over the whole world and fill your garden pots and you won't be able to grow anything else speculating yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> the scientists here no uh that is that is really interesting because with uh um cooler and drier that to me, that's interesting. Usually, you think if you get hot, you get drier. But right now, we're in uh, uh, El Nino, 
with just switched over does switching over have anything to do with does it affect prairie much um i it's pretty short lived so i mean when we're talking about you know five years that's hard to say what the if there's going to be long-term effects yeah yeah um when we're talking about cooler and drier we're talking about like hundreds to thousands of years you know yeah yeah so um, didn't we have we had like a mini ice age though right there was a lot of climate things that happened after the main ice age um or the you know the glaciers left and again i i would need to kind of brush up on the <laughs> on Maybe that timeline andy. andy was the history guy Bummer. Yeah. but uh so with prairie here in the midwest we have uh we have our tall grass we have our mixed grass and we have our short grass what determines what grass wouldn't big blue stem have just spread into the shorter grass because the short grass is further west and then you got your mixed grass which is like uh nebraska borderline of like basically on the other side of less hills from here um why why isn't that tall grass uh i think it has mostly to do with um precip so oh um you you kind of have that gradient where the there's a point where you know the the tall grasses just don't have the competitive advantage given the you know the low precipitation so Mm -hmm. short grasses will survive the that those conditions where tall grasses tend not to man that's fascinating well if there was one thing that you were studying that you were looking into that you wanted to make people aware of that you were studying what would it be um i would say check out so our um Previous graduate student, Alec Glidden, recently published a paper in restoration ecology, um, kind of publishing the results from that uh, study that uh, I talked to, we talked about, looking at um, dormant season planting and seed mix design and mowing. Um, I would say ch- check that out. Um, we're also working on some new projects with FSA, looking at... Um, dynamics of the seed market and um kind of what you know thinking about what is um going into the cost of some of these plants is there biological barriers to um you know getting species out there from a cost perspective and what are they and how do we uh what could we do to overcome those it's hard because when we let's say we grow a field of great blue lobelia well no let me use swamp milkweed because that's a stark one swamp milkweed you don't get anything the first year get a little bit the second year get a lot the third and fourth year get a tiny bit the fifth year and then the sixth year you have to put into beans so when you're doing math with corn and beans it's really simple you have your inputs how much money you spent on it this year and then at the end of the year you harvested it and you figure out how much you made Hopefully that's a positive number uh, when you subtract what you made from how much you put into it. But with swamp milkweed, we, so the first year, okay, yeah, it's an investment year. But year two, well, we can't really take just year two and make sure the inputs were correct. Because one, you have year one where you didn't make anything and that has to be eaten in year two in your profits. But two, it's also, it's probably not your best year. So then three and four, you get basically have to add up a five-year money period 
and then divide it and put it out and um, figure out if, and it's very hard to speculate because the next year uh, you could have drought and kill the field, you know, instead of getting your good fourth year, you might not get a fourth year. Um, and now all of a sudden in your third year, when you speculate, you have a good year, your fourth year, you, you undersold. And now you lost money on these five years. Uh, it is a very, it is just difficult to get into prairie growing. It just is, unless you want to do big blue stem and Indian grass, which is why there's so many people who grow it and why the price is like, like wholesale price, like four or five bucks, which in the past, um, we've seen people sell Indian grass for $28 a pound. Um, and, and, and so jumping into the market, you know, we have farmers all the time. I want to do something different. Like, uh, tell me what we can do. And then I, I start to explain to them the process and I'm just trying to be upfront with them. You know, Hey, this is how much it would cost you to get into Prairie. Um, you're going to need to rent year. You're going to need to rent for two years without making any money. Uh, on your third year, you're going to make some money, but it's not going to be enough to cover everything on the fourth year, maybe. But then also like you'll need this equipment or you'll need these things. Um, and, uh, it is so difficult to make money. You either have to already own land, uh, and most major equipment like skid loaders and tractors, and then only have to buy a few implements, uh, let alone cleaning the seed. You know, you have to have a a whole facility set up for cleaning the seed. I mean, our, our seed cleaning setup, if we bought it today, you're talking $150,000. It's like a combine, you know, um, but, uh, I totally stole your, uh, uh, your talk to go on a tirade of, of saying it, it is very difficult and this isn't necessarily a problem because there's lots of benefits to this, but, but a hurdle is that there wasn't a lot of competition in Prairie when it first started. So people got, instead of like with computers, there were a couple of companies that got like a year or two head start. These companies got like a couple decades head start. Um, and so the, to be able to match their price, it's just hard. It's very difficult. Anyway, that was my target, but I wanted to hear more about what you were saying with, um, that study on, on the marketplace and getting people into it. Yeah. So we're more thinking about it from a biology standpoint, Mm -hmm. right? So, um, you guys are the experts on how to actually do it yeah (laughs) we're trying to figure out you know you know we have so many so we in the upper midwest in iowa specifically so the tall grass prairie is the best is the i think probably the only um ecosystem in the world where you can purchase the seeds from over half of the species that are in a you know the prairie or the the ecosystem that you live really so we are we are in (laughs) the best place in the world with respect to ecological restoration wow and where where we're at like with the rainforest you can't do that or like well it just takes so much uh when we're talking forests we're talking a whole different you know ball game we're talking yeah uh we talk about the challenges with uh producing seed and and uh tallgrass prairies but like these are situations where like this particular monkey has to poop out this particular seed and under these circumstances whoa that's so so yeah with with uh with rainforests and like for example there's a lot of interest in um the atlantic rainforests of brazil restoring those um you know 
there's just a tremendous amount of species diversity and complexity that um, that is going to take a long time for them to, to figure wow. out. And and we are really fortunate in that kind of the climate is easy for us to produce all these species. We don't have to worry about uh, like in, in California where you know the monsoon doesn't come or you know we don't get rain this year. Yeah, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. We actually can get some rain enough to supplement. Um, so, you know, we have a really good place to ask questions about, um, the, 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 what species we do have, um, and, and thinking about, okay, you know, we, we know, for example, some species are very expensive. Yeah. So how can we learn more about why that is in terms of the biology? For example, you know, um, what if swamp milkweed didn't have the little fluff on it? You know, yeah. if it didn't have such, if it wasn't wind dispersed, what if it was gravity dispersed? How would that change the calculus? You mm. know, and and knowing those kind of things would help us uh, understand. You know, from a institutional perspective, how can we get research for you guys to, you know, overcome some of these barriers and make it easier to produce seed? Yeah, man, that is crazy. We yeah, we do love. We love the idea of producing seed a little easier. Our big thing, man, is weeds. Dude, that is tough. Our, our For the most part, we just have to plant. Forbes, specifically, you just got to plant on rows, and we mow them and mow them and mow them and mow and mow and mow. And mow. Um, I mean, it was like two and a half full-time jobs this summer to have people mowing through those uh, through those fields. But uh, um, what do people say have been the hardest, um, like what are some of the hardest species to grow and why? So we're not even really into the how to grow. We're just taking a step back from a really broad, like, okay, so what, what was the cost of the species this year and look at it over time and see, you know, how did that, um, how did that change with, for example, the pollinator boom? Cause we yeah. know, we know some species were super impacted from that. Obviously, it's a demand situation, but some species didn't really go up in price the, to the extent that some other ones did. Hmm. And um, you know, what is there something that we can predict based on that? Those kind of yeah. questions. Um, Interesting. And so it's really it's sort of a it's a way to address the question that a lot of people have, which is why is this stuff so expensive? Because people see the price tag and they're just mm-hmm. like, I'm not interested in this. Yeah. But if we can help people understand what, why, what goes in, you know, what are the fundamental issues with, because people sort of expect things to work like corn and beans or any kind of, you know, agricultural crop. Yeah. So helping to kind of disentangle why something would be expensive from a yeah diverse plant community standpoint right um i think that would help yeah some folks you know in policy positions to um maybe um understand a little bit more and be maybe more um um you know willing to um uh, keep keep programs with native plants in it going yeah well it'd be a huge bummer if they didn't for everyone but yeah that it's hard because 
Um, I remember I was so frustrated with some guy who I had heard said we were asking for um, help with something from a, another local farmer. And one of his friends was like, well, they, they uh, sell their seed for enough that they, uh, that they, you know, they should be able to hire you for a hundred dollars an hour. And I was like, dude, let me just break down this math and explain to you why we just break even, <laughs> you know, let, come on over here and I'll, I'll show it to you because um, uh, there is money to be made in simplicity. Uh, for instance, planting a whole state to two species, there's money to be made there. The more complicated and diverse you get, the more satisfaction you get out of life and the closer we get to the original ecosystems, uh, the harder it is. You know, I mean, how many parasites, plants that need other plants and have to live in those plants? That's like, that's hard. Growing um, growing blue flocks or uh, what's a prairie flocks, uh, flox filosa, growing that under trees. That's hard. You know, those things are hard to do. Um, so... Yeah, there are, uh, being able to do it easier would help drive the price down. Now that was interesting where Bob Wubin was talking about on the, at the conference, the roadside conference we were just at, he was talking about the soils and his whole thing was, uh, because a lot of our price comes from those years. We don't get anything in between years where we've got, where we have to wait for things to grow and, and then other years have to offset those years. Well, his whole thing is if we can put the nutrients back instead of a field lasting six or seven years, we can get it to last 18 years, you know, 20 years. And then you're, you know, by 20% cutting out, uh, expense. And, that, and that's really good. And, uh, frankly, I've been to his, I've been to his farm or his, uh, uh, his garden center. He has a crazy results on how much seed he produces per plant. Crazy. I, I looked at, um, he had several pots where he had, uh, especially done the soil, um, with his golden brew, he calls it. And it was like three, three by, so like nine, 27 square feet, uh, for golden Alexander. He got like 18 pounds of seed off of it. That's insane. I literally told him, uh, I was like, Hey, if, if like everything works, like you're saying it's going to work, like you're going to be a millionaire in like two years and prairie, well, there'll be a lot more prairie for a lot cheaper, be a lot more ready, readily available, People for their yards will be able to buy it. But if you do the math, like we sell 500 square foot for 30 bucks. And I think 50 bucks is a thousand square foot. That's not that different than yard, like lawn grass, you know, it's, it's similar priced and, uh, there's a lot less maintenance in the long run with this stuff than long grass. But yeah, price is something I could tirade on as well. Justin, you're pressing all my buttons. You're, you're good to me today, but Man, I, I do really appreciate it. We're, we're wrapping up our hour. We got interview after interview going on today. So, But I want to ask you one thing uh, before we go. If uh, we're, at, we're in harvest season right now in Iowa, if every farmer got the last corn and bean off the ground this year and then everyone packed up and left the state, what would happen over, give it 100 years? No one stepped foot back, foot back in the state. Not to bring bison in, not to do anything. Okay, so we're... Um... All the buildings yeah. are still there. <laughs> well, I mean, you'd probably get um, a lot of weeds for <laughs> quite a while. Yeah, I, I, you know, and by our, weeds you mean non-natives. Yeah, um, like annual weeds, like your what you see in the fields. Uh, yeah, buttonweed, uh, amaranth. You would probably have that for quite a while. You would eventually get um, 
some of the native uh, perennial weedy species like frost aster and mm. can of goldenrod, they would probably colonize uh, over time pretty in, I don't know, five, ten years maybe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Speculating, obviously. Um, and uh, you'd get a lot of trees. You'd get a lot more forests throughout yeah. the throughout the state certainly anywhere kind of towards the bottom of a watershed probably would be cottonwood forests and uh Mm. ash and variety of forests and um certain places uh like around prairie remnants you'd probably eventually get some expansion of prairie where there's prairie already very slowly but, you think it uh, would end up being mixed with like brome and reeds canary and they'd kind of become parts of the ecosystem? It depends on, I mean, certainly that would be a big component. Um, you'd have to think about it from a site based standpoint, but yeah, I mean, obviously given that brome is every, literally everywhere we go, anywhere there's a road, there's brome, mm-hmm. anywhere, anywhere where there's a human habitation, there's uh bluegrass. Mm-hmm. Um, those things are going to be dominant parts of whatever this new <laughs> ecosystem are. Yeah. Uh, certainly all the most wet spaces will be mostly reed canary. Um, classic. But, uh, you know, we're only talking 100 years, right? Yeah. Like, we shouldn't expect that much to happen. And, I mean, 100 years from a, you know, a geological standpoint about, you know, how how long it took the prairies to assemble. Yeah. is like nothing. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, what happens farther down the road? Obviously, we've we're going to have a, you know... Oklahoma-based climate, assuming that uh, actually, if everybody stopped, uh, if everybody left, <laughs> then uh, probably climate change would. Uh, oh, you think that? So the evidence points that we'll be like Oklahoma here soon. I think it's uh, what twenty twenty hundred is uh, some of the more moderate to high scenarios have us looking like Oklahoma. What what year? Twenty one hundred. 2100 man crazy yeah crazy crazy yeah it's uh i was talking about this with andy a big part of it is we're trying to convince people that uh uh there's more value to things than the dollar i saw this thing on facebook many years ago it said uh um only when uh only when all the rivers are and lakes are dried up and all the vegetation and animals have died away. Will billionaires realize you can't drink money or eat status? And uh, not, I'm not blaming all on billionaires. It's billions of people making incremental decisions based solely off of themselves that uh, that leads us to things like refusing to do anything about climate change. <laughs> you know. But well, speaking of which, this comes to my last question that I always ask everyone: If you could snap your fingers, change one thing about the world. What would it be? <laughs> now that we've just nobly talked about climate change. Mm. Oh, man. One thing, I suppose I would, uh, I would, uh, I would, I would create um, sort of distribution centers for native seed. We have multiple tall grass prairie centers all around 
the uh, all around the Tallgrass Prairie region where we have, um, you know, coordinated efforts to actually get higher quality native plants out there to people at, you know, at possible uh, costs. So yeah, how can we, I want to snap my fingers and create a world where Tallgrass Prairie is integrated in everything that people do, you know, it's in their, it's in their yard. It's in the, uh, yeah, it's in the ditches. It's in the fields. Spoken from a man who truly obviously loves the tall grass prairies. That was really cool. Thanks for hanging out with me, Justin. Yeah, you bet it. That was a fun time. And I don't know if I've ever learned more. Well, Keith Schilling might have you run for your money. I learned so much in that guy's butt, but I, this is right up there with it. How much I learned. And I live in this field. I live in the field of prairie and I still just learned so much. It makes me feel small, <laughs> but, uh, Hey everyone. Thank you so much for listening. Do not forget. We are sponsored and presented by Hoxie native seeds. They paid for me to drive up here and all the equipment we're using and, uh, pay for my time to, uh, uh, to do these podcasts. And, uh, the reason dad, pays for those things is because he really, really believes that education on prairie is very important for the spreading of prairie. Uh, I tell people, you you don't go into conservation for money. Um, and not only is dad not in it for money, he's willing to spend money to help the world around him. And uh, I think that is, is really, really cool. And there are things you can do too. One, you can share this podcast. You can share it with someone because when we experience prairie, when we learn about prairie, we care a little bit more. When we care a little bit more, it just changes our actions even on the smallest bit where instead of pulling out that black-eyed Susan, maybe we just let it be, you know, and uh, or to the point where you want to put in your own prairie. And if that's the case, you know where to look, hoxynativeseeds.com or theprairiefarm.com. But these things are important to us because uh, conservation, it happens one mind at a time.